Welcome to our third session of Didache. You should have picked up session three, Christ fulfills the law, and the fourth commandment in the outline at the door. The hymn is still our Ten Commandments Catechism Hymn 581. Stanzas 1, 11, and 12 will be singing each week while we're on the Ten Commandments. Today, stanza 5 is the stanza on the fourth commandment. So 1, 5, 11, and 12. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Almighty God, whose compassion never fails, and who invites us to call upon you in prayer, hear the heartfelt confession of our sins, and receive our humble supplication for your mercy. Spare us from the just punishment of sin, which our Lord Jesus Christ has borne for us, and enable us to serve you in holiness and purity of life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Hymn 581. Peace Today we begin in the Didache, or Lutheran Catechesis book, Lesson 2, which is on page 47 and following, and according to our schedule, we'll actually be in Lesson 2 for a number of weeks uh, as we delve into not only an understanding of the law that sees Christ as the fulfillment of the law, but as we Meditate upon each of the Ten Commandments under the second table of the law. The first table of the law refers to which three commandments? One, two, and three. See, I start out with the easy questions, all right? So those first three commandments, you shall 
Have no other gods. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Those first three commandments describe our relationship to God. And they are summarized in numerous places in the scriptures, both in the Old Testament and in Jesus' catechesis in the New Testament, that that first table of the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And that's repeated throughout the Old Testament and in Jesus' catechesis in the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul says, love is the fulfillment of the law. So, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second table of the law, which we begin especially today, fourth commandment through the tenth commandment, describes our relationship to one another. So the first table, our relationship to God. Second table, our relationship to one another. And in the second table of the law, the scriptures define that as love your neighbor as yourself. So those, those are like two summary commandments of the Ten Commandments, okay? <clears throat> two summary commandments of the two tables of the law. First three, our relationship to God. Next seven, our relationship to one another. And love characterizes both. So again, Paul says love is the fulfillment of the law. And so in Jesus' death upon the cross, one of our themes over these next weeks is to accent what the scriptures teach about Christ as the fulfiller of the law. Which means if you take the first table of the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, we see in Jesus who is willing to go to the cross to suffer and die that he loves his Father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, even though it means that he will lay down his life for us and for the whole world. So what the first table of the law demands, Christ fulfills. In so doing, he also loves his neighbor by laying down his life on our behalf. So love your neighbor as yourself, or as I like to accent in catechesis class, love your neighbor in place of yourself, that is really what Jesus did in his suffering and death upon the cross. Okay? And we'll be exploring these themes throughout. <clears throat> All right, a little bit more review from uh, last session. Actually, the last two sections uh, sessions. We summarized the first three commandments which I said are so often thought of only in the negative terms. You shall have no other gods. You shall not, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. But there's a positive aspect of these where God is saying to us very simply three things. Under the first commandment, what does he say? Trust me. Yeah. I'm the God who made you. I'm the God who saved you. I'm the source of all things good. Trust me. First commandment. Second commandment. Pray to me. We who trust it, call upon me for everything you need. Do not be afraid. Trust me and then pray to me, call upon me. And finally, third commandment, hear me, hear me. For his word, going back to creation, is the very source of life. 
And it's by his word that faith is created. And so when we were having the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. The Old Testament scriptures, Moses and the prophets, were there to proclaim in their preaching the word of God that called Israel to repentance and faith. So I commented last week how there's this lovely circle in the first three commandments where by hearing the word of God, we learn to trust first commandment and out of the trust of the heart, the voice of faith prays and we hear the word and we trust and by faith we call upon him. See, is this wonderful circle that is described in those first three commandments. And here again, you have Jesus who, in resolute faith and confidence in his Father, trusts him. And because he does, he prays, like in the Garden of Gethsemane, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will but thine be done. There you have the resolution of faith that commends itself to God's good and gracious will. And when Jesus said in his temptation in the wilderness, man does not live by bread alone, not even he relied upon himself, he relied upon the word of his Father. So, trust me, pray to me, hear me. And finally, I'm always going to do this a little bit, to have, have us, because uh, if you've got your Lutheran Catechesis book and you're doing diligent study every day, you can uh, learn the terms, okay? So, under the first three commandments, here's the first, here's the first quiz question for you. What's the term? The words by which God tells us who he is and by which we call upon him in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. What's the term? Name of God. God. Yeah. The name of God are any and all of those words that God uses of himself whereby he reveals himself to us And then we call upon him, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Heavenly Father, Lord God, etc. Okay, let's see if I can catch you on this. To condemn or call down judgment upon someone or something, including the use of profanities and vulgar speech. Cursing. Cursing. Good. How about to devote yourself and anything of your person in life to the hearing and learning of God's word. To keep holy. To keep holy. So you have the glossary open there, and you're just cheating there, aren't you? Okay. Trying to stretch your imagination. All right. Uh, We will be covering fourth commandment terms here uh, today. But one last term. To desire the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Righteousness. Not righteousness. Love. It's got in the definition part of that summary of the first table of, of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay? So I'd prefer you, when we're, when we're reviewing here at the beginning, just give me your eyes and ears and do the best you can. Someone will come up with it. All right. Today's uh, reading is from Matthew chapter 5, and we're actually going to be in this reading. It's the first book of the New Testament. It's from the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus saw the multitude, and then he sat down with his disciples, and he taught them. So the the congregation to whom he is speaking here happens to be the disciples. So the words that he speaks here are not particularly broadcast over the whole multitude, but they're for the disciples who are following him, who believe in him. Okay. Now, we're going to begin the reading this week and talk about the introductory section, which is foundational. And then as we look at the fifth commandment next week and the sixth and so forth, we're going to keep coming back to this in a similar way in which we went back to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Okay. So, Matthew 5, beginning at verse 17, and remember he's talking to his disciples. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, One jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Now those are our verses then for this morning. Uh, There's the term righteousness, Tom, that you had mentioned earlier. It comes here at the end of the reading for today. But go back to verse 17, and our discussion of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus may help you remember the meaning of words and phrases in this verse. So when Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets... What is he referring to by the law and the prophets? Kathy? The Torah. The Torah is the law. The Old Testament. The prophets, the rest of the Old Testament. So yes, law and the prophets, or law and the prophets and the Psalms, are repeated phrases in the New Testament that are referring to the Old Testament scriptures. Remember, when Jesus began his ministry, which lasted roughly three years before his crucifixion and resurrection, there is no New Testament written yet. That isn't written until after the ascension of our Lord and uh, some years after that. So when Jesus is preaching and teaching to the disciples, anytime he is referring to the scriptures, he's referring to the Old Testament. Okay? And that that is an important understanding because then when he starts talking about the Old Testament as being fulfilled in what he is doing, this is where people like Martin Luther make the assertion the entire Old Testament is actually about Christ. So all of those sacrifices are about Christ. 
All of the liturgy, confessing their sins daily, is about Christ. Okay. So he says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. Question. What was going on in Jesus' ministry that would ever give the disciples the idea that some people thought that Jesus was out to destroy the Old Testament scriptures? What was going on in his ministry? Polly? Well, the scribes and the Pharisees were constantly monitoring his every move and every word. The scribes and the Pharisees, scribes were the ones who copied the scriptures, they were the theologians, the Pharisees were the experts of the law, and they were out to get him. They were out to try to catch him in his words in a contradiction. Polly, did they claim to be faithful to the Old Testament scriptures? Absolutely. Furthermore, what did the scribes and the Pharisees as a group believe about salvation? How did they obtain it? Through their good works. Defined as fulfilling the law. That's right. So, why would the disciples get the impression that perhaps Jesus came to destroy the law and the prophets? Where is that accusation coming from? From the scribes and the Pharisees. You can imagine, oh, you follow this Jesus of Nazareth? He doesn't follow the scriptures. He denies the law of Moses. He overturns it. He plucks grain on the Sabbath. He's working. He heals on the Sabbath. He's working. He doesn't keep the law. He's an unrighteous man, Tom. Okay? Your teacher is out to destroy the law and the prophets. So Jesus is picking up on that when he says, do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. Kathy. But he's also doing, uh, like, uh, touching dead people. And, uh, yesterday's, and, and yes. Touching lepers. And I know, man, he's just doing all of this stuff. I, I know. Making himself unclean, touching a corpse, yeah. touching the lepers. Right, which leads to another aspect of not only was it salvation by works that they believed in, and they believed Jesus was overturning the law and the prophets, but they also objected fundamentally to what is being exhibited by Jesus when he is touching the lepers or touching the dead and so forth. Cleansing, yeah. The act of cleansing, which is tied up with what? What is Jesus known for in this cleansing? Forgiveness of sins. And he was giving forgiveness of sins, this cleansing, this mercy, not on the basis, Polly, of works, but he was forgiving sinners. We will read this year from Luke's gospel how they objected, the scribes and the Pharisees again, because he received sinners and ate with them. So here again, if he's doing that, he is not keeping the law. He is not following the Old Testament scriptures. Okay? So do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. Kathy? Uh, but those laws that were given uh, in the Old Testament um, were done to protect the Jews, were they not? Like the... Uh, 
So if I repeat things, it's for the sake of the, uh, the recording. Kathy says, now those laws in the Old Testament were given by God to protect things. It, it's true, period. I mean, God's law has that function, which we will look at in a little bit. But you see how they, the scribes that, you know, when they see you touch a leper, you let the woman with the 12 years of uh, blood flow touch your, the hem of your garment, that all those things... You can see it from their point of view. Do you want to be a Pharisee? I don't describe? Want to be okay, a but uh, that's okay. But, you know, we all have our sinful flesh is all a little bit Pharisaical. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So they had a, they had a point. But what Kathy is touching upon when when he allows the woman with the flow of blood to touch him, he, it renders him ceremonially unclean. If he touches a leper, if he touches the coffin of a dead man, as yes. happened in yesterday's gospel from Luke seven, this renders him ceremonially unclean. So it leads to the question then, what is the purpose and function of the law? Okay, And we're <clears throat> going to examine that today. And so what Jesus is saying there is, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Okay, Wally, go ahead. In the back, I'm thinking in the back of your mind here, we're worried about, or, or concerned about, with the miracles that he did, that they are blaming that on him being part of Satan. But also at the same time, they worried about uh, Jesus. Uh, Sounds like politicians, you know. He's got, a, he's got a demon in him. He's doing all this stuff. It must be because he's in line with Satan. Yeah, that is another accusation that comes. And then, and then the other point would be that, uh, that he was uh, uh, established, establishing his kingdom, that they want him to be their savior, their messiah. Well, it is certainly, yeah, he's establishing his kingdom. I mean, one of the things that the scribes and the Pharisees objected to was any notion of a Messiah that would call them to repentance for their sin. Rather, they wanted a Messiah who would pat them on the back, you're so wonderful, see, uh, and again, reward them for their, for their works and accomplishments. Kathy? So are you saying then that um, the scribes and Pharisees knew the Messiah was coming? Absolutely. And because it was part of the Old Testament. Correct. They were expecting it. They just didn't like they didn't like this version of the Messiah. That's right. The scribes and the Pharisees, unlike the Sadducees, the Sadducees were liberal clergymen of Jesus' day. There's always been liberal clergymen. Beware of liberal clergymen who deny the Bible. Okay? The Pharisees and the scribes did not deny the Bible. They believed in the authority of the Bible. They just misinterpreted the Bible. They didn't see that at the center of the Bible is God's plan of salvation, not by human works, but by the grace of God in Messiah. So the reason they objected to Jesus is their idea of the Messiah, that's why I patted Kathy on the back, imagining she was Israel, it was that the Messiah would come and reward us for all the good stuff that we've done and kick the sinners out. So when Jesus is forgiving sinners, not on the basis of the works of the law, but as a gift of God's love and mercy, his grace, they objected to that. Okay? And all of this is, this is why it's a good discussion and the questions you're raising, all of this is entering into this accusation that Jesus is anticipating, that his disciples have been hearing this 
about the one they're following. He's destroying the law and the prophets. He says, I didn't come to destroy. Quite the opposite. I came to fulfill. Now, the word here, fulfill, means to bring to completion. All right? And then, to further bring this point home, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, anytime, this is the New King James, if you've got in the Old King James, anything like, Assuredly, I say to you, or verily, verily, I say unto you, that means pay attention. This is, you know, what you have to underline. These are main points. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle. Now, that's what it is in the English translation, but it is the Greek yoda, iota, which is the smallest mark, and the Hebrew yod, the smallest mark. So it's referencing the very smallest mark in the Greek alphabet and in the Hebrew alphabet. He's saying not one jot or tittle or iota or yod will pass away uh, until all is fulfilled. And who's going to do it according to Jesus' words? He is. That's key. Then he goes on to say, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, are there degrees of commandments? Well, the act of premeditated first-degree murder, you shall not murder, fifth commandment, versus um, an unintentional transgression. Yeah, even in the Old Testament, there were differences. But Jesus says, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom. Which is to say, if you break even one of God's commandments, no matter how insignificant, what are you? A sinner. Now this least in the kingdom, and then you have whoever does and teaches uh, shall be called great in the kingdom. Whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom. It's the idea of having no standing. The Pharisees and the scribes believed that they had a standing before God because they kept the commandments. But Jesus is saying, you offend even the least of the commandments. You have no standing before God, which means, it's the reason I use this phrase, that you have no right to demand from him blessing on the basis of your righteousness. You have no standing. Why? Because you are sinner. Okay? Now, whoever does and teaches, whoever does and teaches. Whoever breaks one of the least and teaches men so. How do parents teach their children to break the Ten Commandments, let's say? What is the chief way, Chuck? By their example. By their example. So, let's go back to the first table of the law. If in the home you curse, cuss, use profanity, 
What are you going to teach your children to do? Curse, cuss, use profanity. Uh, under, the, under the third commandment, hear me, if everything else takes precedence for you overcoming to hear God's word preached, then you're teaching your children to despise preaching and God's word. See? If every other activity takes precedence, you don't, you're not saying them, stay away from God's word, but by your actions you're teaching them. If in the face of danger or harm, you never call upon God in prayer in the home for deliverance, you're teaching your children not to trust God and not to pray to Him. Do you follow? So whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least. Again, you have no standing. Uh, this week in the congregation at prayer, we've got the sins of the fathers are visited upon the children. This is one of the ways in which it takes place. Now, in the middle of verse 19, it turns, but whoever does and teaches them, he, singular, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, if breaking even the least of the commandments gives you no standing, then he who does and teaches them is the one who keeps how much? All. If breaking one of the least of the commandments gives you no standing, then the one who does and teaches them breaks no law. And he's called what? Grace. He's called what in verse 18, 19? Grace. Great in the kingdom. You follow that? Who is he who both does and teaches? Jesus. He does and teaches what the law demands. Does he ever fail to trust his Father, ever? Does he ever fail to pray at all times, to praise God, to give thanks, even in the midst of suffering? No. Does he ever shut his ears to the Father's word? No. Does he ever not love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength? No. Does he ever fail to love his neighbor in place of himself? No. Whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great. So I submit to you, verse 19 is a reference to Jesus, who is the only one who does and teaches. And that goes back to verse 17. Do not think I came to destroy, but to fulfill. He fulfills the law by loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving his neighbor as himself. And now finally this verse, for I say to you, now this word for connects to what we just had. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The, right, the scribes and Pharisees believed they were the most obedient, faithful, law-abiding people that ever lived. Or, to use the language of Jesus in verse 20, the scribes and Pharisees believed that they were what? Use the language of verse 20. Righteous. Speak up. Righteous. There, then the recording can hear it. See, I don't have to repeat it. Righteous. But they weren't righteous. 
even though they believed they were, because according to Jesus' own words, whoever breaks one of the least of these. You mean to tell me, oh, Pharisee, David the Pharisee here, you've never ever transgressed even the least of God's commandments? But they were so full of themselves with self-righteousness, they would probably likely say, no, not really. And in so doing, who are they trusting in? Themselves. Who are they making a God out of? Themselves. It's the same thing with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, right? That rich man, it wasn't simply that he trusted in his wealth, but he fundamentally trusted in himself, in his own accomplishments. And if he had wealth, yeah, look at what I have done for myself. You see? So unless your righteousness exceeds, is greater, surpasses that of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, is Jesus saying here then, just try harder than the scribes and Pharisees to keep the law? No. He just got through saying, who is the only one who fulfills both the law and the prophets? He is. So whose righteousness, then, is greater than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? Christ's righteousness. Now, there's something else about this righteousness. For the scribes and Pharisees, they, quote-unquote, did good works for whose benefit? Their own. So they're loving God and they're loving their neighbor, if you could call it that, their obedience to the law was, what kind of benefit am I going to get out of it? What's going to accrue to me? Hey, if there's no benefit to me to keep the law, what's the point? This is the idolatry where you say, if God's not going to give me what I want on my terms, what's the point in worshiping him? Well, that's not faith in the Lord at all. Why does Jesus lay down his life in death? For whose benefit does he do this? For our benefit and out of love for the Father. So you see, his keeping of the law, when the apostle says love is the fulfillment of the law, it's not love of self. It's the love that lets go of self for the benefit of another and in fervent faith in God, do you see? So Jesus actually denies himself. And he shows us what true love is. The love of self-sacrifice. Now, here's a little apologetic. Apologetic is kind of a defense of the faith using reason that even appeals to natural law. At 9-11, what are we, 18 years after the, is that what it is? I forget, something like that. 19 years, okay. When the Twin Towers were hit and so forth, what is it more, and then the firemen and the police were going into the burning building knowing full well that they may lose their life in so doing, and many of them did. What's more noble? Even, what does the world consider more noble? The sacrifice of one's life to try to help those or to say, man, I'm not going into that building. It's the former, right? So even the world can understand that the love of Self-sacrifice is greater than the love that only thinks of me, myself, and I. Do you see why we say the law really does describe what is good? It's not just a capricious, arbitrary set of rules 
The law really does define what is good, what is right. And ultimately, that love which the law calls for and demands and describes is fulfilled in the sacrifice of Christ. That is the righteousness which is greater than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, Jesus says, unless your righteousness, how does that righteousness of Christ become ours? It is through faith, and it is a gift of God's grace in the gospel. So the righteous, the prophet Habakkuk says, or the just, shall live by faith. And the object of our faith is Christ, who in his death upon the cross did not destroy the law and the prophets, but fulfilled every jot and tittle, every iota and yod. Okay? All right. This general introduction now will apply to everything else we talk about on the law. Polly? So, so was verse 20, was that um, something that the, the apostles would have regarded When Jesus spoke this, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, would the apostles have heard this and trembled in fear? Or would they have understood it as the righteousness that would be received by faith in him? Well, probably at the time that Jesus spoke it, they didn't necessarily grasp it or understand it. As Jesus said, even on Holy Thursday night, the night of his arrest, I have many things to say to you, but you do not understand them now, but you will. Okay. Uh, when Matthew's writing the gospel, a few years after Jesus' ascension, he got it. And, but it's very important that we see the concept of righteousness here. In, in St. Matthew's gospel, wherever it appears, it is actually accenting Christ as the righteous one. For example, at his baptism, it says that he is fulfilling all righteousness. Permit me to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Earlier on in the Sermon on the Mount, it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why were Christians persecuted? For Christ's sake. To say, so to say to be persecuted for righteousness' sake is to be persecuted for Christ's sake. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for so they persecuted the prophets. So when Matthew is penning this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he gets it. Some Lutherans think that the teaching of being declared righteous or justified by faith is something that only Paul talked about. No, no, Paul talked about it because Jesus taught it. Okay? And in Matthew's Gospel, the few times that the word righteousness is used all refers to the righteousness of Christ as the fulfiller of the law for us. And so, as the prophets say, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. As God said through Moses regarding Abraham, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Remember, that's why when we talked about the parable 
of the rich man and Lazarus, why was Father Abraham the image of heaven? Because the bosom of Abraham, that's where all go, all who believe the promise made to Abraham, all who are righteous by faith in that promise of Abraham's seed, who is Christ. You see how it all, it all fits together. Okay. All right. Let us go then to the fourth commandment specifically. Changing gears, but this is uh, our ongoing progression through the Ten Commandments. The fourth commandment is the first commandment in the second table of the law. Do you follow that? The fourth commandment is the first commandment in the second table of the law, love your neighbor as yourself. While it is true that under the scrutiny, you like that word, scrutiny? I'll point the finger at you. Under the scrutiny of God's law, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and there's no distinction in law in that sense. The law accuses us of sin. But in terms of the horizontal relationship, God's order in creation, there is a hierarchy to the law. So when we say that the fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother, is the first commandment in the second table of the law, part of what we're saying there is that the fourth commandment is the most important commandment in the second table of the law. Why? Because the authority of father and mother is God's authority in the world. And where God's authority in the world is disregarded, there's anarchy and chaos and every manifestation of evil. You know this to be true in the home. If Johnny and Sally honor and obey mom and dad, there's no problems in the home, is there? Johnny doesn't poke Sally's eye out. She doesn't clobber him over the head with whatever she can get her hands on. There's not lying. There's not stealing. There's not, you know, speaking bad words. Out of the authority of father and mother, where there's honor and obedience, all of the other stuff flows. By extension, as we've been uh, learning in our Sunday morning Bible class regarding the Lutheran day school, we've been talking about the two kingdoms in the secular kingdom. All earthly authorities derive from the authority of father and mother, which includes the authority of government. So why are certain cities of the country, you know, burning over these last weeks? Because the rule of law is set aside and the civil authorities are not being parents. You know this to be true in the home. If mom and dad allow Johnny and Sally to do whatever they want, they will become brats. So we have brats running around the streets of uh, the United States. Okay, So as, as family goes, as the authority of father and mother goes, so goes the obedience and civility of our cities and towns and country. 
Okay? So the fourth commandment is the most important commandment under the second table of the law. So let's, I'll ask you, you respond. What is the fourth commandment? Honor your father and your mother. This is page 49, if you want. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise or anger our parents and other authorities, but honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. All right. So the second table of the law, love for the neighbor as one's self, begins with this fourth commandment. In each of the commandments in the second table of the law, God wishes to protect his good gifts. So the gift of father and mother, if they are to be honored, it's because who do they represent? God, through whom children were given life, and through whom children are cared for, and through whom children are protected, and through whom children are taught. Now, if you apply that to the civil realm, the civil realm exists to protect life, to protect and to provide for the nation so that commerce can go on and there can be food and drink and clothing and so forth. So the civil authority, just like in the home, mom and dad maintain order so that Johnny and Sally don't kill each other. Then things go better. The civil authority is to maintain order so that wicked and evil people like David don't beat up on other people like Kathy. Okay? So the law is there. If there is no law, there's no restraint. More about that in a moment. Okay? So the force of law in the civil realm, just like in the home, helps to maintain order. So God protects his gift of authority in home and in government by the fourth commandment. In the explanation, notice, we'll see this throughout, the first commandment is behind all of the commandments with the phrase, we should fear and love God. And who was it? John, was it you that said uh, last week or the week before, if you kept the first commandment perfectly, yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't need any of the other commandments or you would be absolutely obedient to all of the others. So obedience to all of the commandments flows from fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Then there's the negative. So we should fear and love God. We should trust God so that we do not despise or anger our parents and other authorities. That would be the negative, the prohibition. But now the positive. But honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. That's the positive description of what we are to do. And all of the positive descriptions in the law, whether it's the first table or the second table, describe what love is. Under the first table, what love of God looks like, that we trust him, we pray to him, we listen to him. Under the second table of the law, to love is to honor our parents, to serve and obey them, to love and cherish them. Okay? And you will have no peace unless you let go of their sin and learn to do that. And this we only learn by allowing Jesus to love us and to forgive us. Is that not true, Kathy? That is true. Okay. So let's go on to a few terms here. 
to honor, and these, the definitions are on page 306, and then I'm uh, adding a term for you that I think is, is helpful. But under the fourth commandment, you have the concept of honor. And the definition given there is to give respect, reverence, this is at the bottom of page 306, respect, reverence, esteem, love, and obedience to those whom God has placed in authority over you. Notice such honor and respect and obedience is not based upon their worthiness, but upon the authority that has been extended to them. What is very, very prevalent in the movement to anarchy and chaos in our country in 2020 is the idea, I will only honor and obey those in power or authority that I agree with. Well, can you imagine if that were taken into the home? I want a candy bar for dinner. I don't want my peas and carrots or whatever. So if the, if the justification for obeying father and mother is whether or not you like what they're telling you, eat your peas and carrots, Kathy, well, then there would never be any obedience, would there? Okay? The other aspect of disobedience is I will obey if they're nice people. I will disobey if they are bad people. Okay? Well, so, for example, you know, many people don't like Donald Trump's personality. Therefore, I will disregard his authority as the president. Well, his authority as the president has nothing to do with whether he is a nice personality or he's boorish or whatever. He has that office, so he has certain constitutional authority granted to him. The same was true of his predecessor, Barack Obama. Okay? The point here is that obedience to the fourth commandment does not have to do or is not based on the worthiness of the office holder, but on the command of God. I'll turn it around a little bit and bring it back into the realm of parents. Some parents, recognizing that they were naughty as children, feel that their naughtiness of, as children means that they can no longer or they're not in a position, or they don't have the moral authority to discipline their children. Not so. Sometimes the naughtiness of a child, once they become an adult, gives them a great perspective on how to deal with children. I think of all my sons, John is the best at that, because he was the naughtiest. Uh, but anyway, so he knows, he knows the kind of shenanigans that the kids pull. Why? Because he pulled them. Okay? But So it's the office that gives the authority. That's the point. It's God and his command that give the authority. Okay? Kathy. So in, in the... Speaking of disobedient children. No, yeah. right, go ahead. <laughs> it does give you an edge off. Yep. Yep. Uh, in the definition of to honor, it says to give respect. Yes. Reverence, esteem, love, and obedience. Is the love that is described there, is 
same love that you have in the first commandment to desire the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Oh, that's a good question. She asks, is the love there under the definition of honor the same love as under the first uh, table of the law to desire the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Not exactly. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's related. The love for God is to, des to desire him, that's why the word desire is there, is that no one, <laughs> all these puns, trumps that allegiance. Okay, not even the, not even the parent. Uh, but it, it, it is to be willing to sacrifice your own will, your own pleasure, your own desires. The obedience and honor, which is what love is, toward the parent is according to God's command, not according to their merit or worthiness. So to stand with them in their old age, even though they may have been whatever they were in their younger days, is the right thing to do because they are the parents given you by God. Okay. I don't know if that helps yep. or not. Okay? Now, earthly authorities is the next one here. Those whom God has placed in positions of authority over us to rule and govern in home and society, to teach what is right and wrong, to punish evildoers, and to reward the good. They include fathers, mothers, and government, and its officials, teachers, police, etc. But since the, since the authorship of this and uh, further study and reflection... It also includes, and I made reference of this quite strongly over the 4th of July catechesis, it also refers to, in our form of government, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights is part of that civil authority. And under our constitutional republic, here again, John, you ready for it? The Constitution trumps the president and trumps the uh, Congress and so forth. It's the highest authority, highest earthly authority. So it's not just people, but more importantly, it's offices, or in this case, the, the position of the Constitution uh, and Bill of Rights in the United States, or the Constitution in the state. All right. Now, vocation or calling. Um, most popularly, the definition of vocation focuses on station, like my vocation is a father, a mother, a husband, a wife. But the narrow focusing for us as Christians is vocation focuses upon where we live out our faith in Christ. So my, the vocation, the root of this is the calling, the call of the gospel to live by faith, not as the scribes and Pharisees did in works righteousness, but to live by faith in the grace of God. So that reflects how I live in my station. Okay, so as a husband, for example, I am called by the gospel to love my wife, not simply because she's pretty or a nice person or I like her, but to love her even if she is not nice, or even if she isn't as pretty as she used to be, or something like that. So the, 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 the idea of vocation for us as Christians centers on 
loving on the basis of God's undeserved love for us. So you can, vocation is the call of the gospel. And station in life, which I've got on your term sheet, is where we live that out. All right. Uh, and finally, and, and, and that, that comes to play more when we talk about the table of duties, we talk about the third article of the creed. I'll bring us back to this, a longer discussion on vocation. Okay, the three functions of the law. How many of you have heard the term, uh, the three uses of the law? Cherie, John, have you heard? Okay. Uh, I prefer the term function. And the reason I prefer the term function is because imagine if I have in my hand a sword, uh, you know, double-bladed, sharp on both sides, and I run Kathy through with the sword. That sword will serve perhaps a number of functions. One of them is it may kill her. On the other hand, perhaps I'm able to use this sword as I stab her, you know, it, uh, it, it releases the pressure of an abscess that begins to drain out. Same, okay, and then the, the, the infection in the pus drains out, which she needs to have drained out of her, you know, so the sword does, does that. Same sword, but it functions differently. Now, a better analogy would be the surgeon's scalpel, right? The surgeon's scalpel, the same instrument, can be used for harm, or it can be used for good. It can be used to cut out an infection, or it can be used to, you know, begin the process of repairing something. So, the reason I use function is that this law of God can serve a number of functions simultaneously. For example, when Johnny plays with the baseball that he's not supposed to do in the front yard because he may break the window, he does that, he breaks the window, then he is called to account for this. And when he does, he's crying because he's broken the window and there are consequences according to the law of mom and dad. He's going to have to pay for the window. He may be punished uh, in additional ways. And in the same process of having done this and knowing the judgment of parental law, he says, I am sorry. Okay? So the one law of what he was not supposed to do demanded his repayment of the glass that was broken, the repair of the window. That function of the law also caused remorse, sorrow, contrition, and helped to move him to confess, I am sorry. See, one law brought about all of this, okay? So, father then says, I forgive you. Now, go to your room and get your money to pay for the 
the window. All right, so what are the functions of the law? First, it's a curb. It restrains, that's what we mean by curb, the gross outbreaks of sin. In this case, uh, but then when you transgress it, there's got to be consequences and punishment. This is sometimes called the civil use of the law, the civil function of the law or use of the law. Uh, you break the law, there are consequences in society, in marriage and family, and before God. Uh, consequences in the form of punishments and so forth. And those are necessary or as we said before, we will raise brats in the home or brats on the streets of our, of our city. The second function of the law is called a mirror or that which kills and crucifies. It, the mirror in the sense that it shows us our sin, what we have done wrong. So Johnny, the, the curbing function, if I do this, I'm going to get in trouble. That's a curbing thing. If I do this and I break the window, I'm going to have to pay for this. That's a curbing function. But then when he does this and he's broken the law and all of these consequences are there, it inspires sorrow for what it is that he has done. And so he, in contrition, confesses, I've sinned, I've done wrong. And that's the second function of the law, that it serves as a mirror to kill self-righteousness and pride. It serves the cause of repentance so that he confesses his sin. And then dad forgives. And the third function of the law is where Johnny realizes, too, through what he's been taught throughout his life, that this law is good. Because when he's footing the bill and he's putting food on the table, he realizes this is a foolish thing to play baseball in the front yard. Because when, when it comes out of my pocket, this law is protecting property and honor and so forth. So the third function of the law is the standard or the guide for what is good and right. And the first function of the law applies to everybody on earth, whether they believe in Jesus or not. The second and third functions of the law that serve as a mirror to show us our sin and a guide for what is good and proper are especially for Christians who accept the notion that God is good and he's the giver of the law. Okay, so um, these are the three functions of the law and they, they function in this way depending on circumstance and so forth. Um, it's the same scalpel, if you will, or the same sword, if you will, but depending upon the circumstances of our life, they function in this way. The third function of the law is a standard or a guide. You think of a yardstick, you know, let's see. If I say, okay, this is three feet. No, I'd have to say this is about three feet. But we'd have to actually get the yardstick out, right, and put it up here to see if my hands are exactly three feet apart. The yardstick is the ruler or the standard of what 36 inches is. You follow what I'm saying? So because of the problem of sin, how many of you are not at all affected in your judgment 
by the problem of sin in your own character and makeup? How many? Raise your hand if sin does not affect your judgment at all. Just, just raise your hand. Okay, no one's hand is up. Good. Mrs. Haga. Okay, so we need the law because it's objective. It tells us what good works really are, objectively. Not, well, I think. Well, in my opinion. Okay, so the law functions in this way for the church and for uh, individual Christians. So the things that we say, for example, when we talk next week about the sanctity of life, we say this, this is the standard, the guide for what is good, that life is sacred from conception to natural death, as it's sometimes called, because we're made in the image of God. Those objective truths of what is right and wrong. Okay? And because of the problem of sin, we need that guidance. We need that standard. As unbelievers, we don't want to do what's right. As believers, we want to do what's right, and the third function of the law guides us in that endeavor. Okay? Now, I did not know if I would have time for this last section, and we don't. So it's about a look at the divine liturgy. The divine service is necessary for faith. We will talk about that as we continue in the second commandment, or in the second table of the law, the fourth and commandments and following. Are there any final questions before we conclude? John? You can't remember the old explanation. Yeah, and I was hoping you could. Uh, let's see if I can bring this to... Yeah, I don't remember authorities. To, to, there you go. Nor provoke them to anger, but give them honor. Yeah. Good. I couldn't remember the word authorities. Masters in place of authority. Mm-hmm. Good. All right. Let, uh, Cherie, did you have um, Just a question about the um, part of the fourth commandment that says um, you'll have long life on the earth. I'm not sure. Again, John, don't remember exactly. Yes. Uh, was that, was the that honor a- your father and your mother is the fourth mm-hmm. commandment, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life upon the earth. Uh, in Luther's catechism, he, in the German, only quoted the commandment in the small catechism and not the appendage as the, the, the consequences on the civil realm. So it's clean, just commandment itself. Okay? So it is from the Old Testament. Okay? And there are implications to that that we can talk about as weeks go on. All right. We continue with the communion liturgy. stand.
Beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins unto God our Father, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. Our help is in the name of the Lord. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. O Almighty God, merciful Father, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities, with which I have ever offended you, and justly deserved your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them, and sincerely repent of them, and I pray you of your boundless mercy, and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor sinful being. Upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God unto all of you, and in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, you have given us this good land as our heritage. Grant that we remember your generosity and constantly do your will. Bless our land with honest industry, truthful education, and an honorable way of life. Save us from violence, discord, and confusion, from pride and arrogance, and from every evil course of action. Grant that we who came from many nations with many different languages may become a united people. Support us in defending our liberties and give those to whom we have entrusted the authority of government, the spirit of wisdom, that there may be justice and peace in our land. When times are prosperous, may our hearts be thankful, and in troubled times do not let our trust in you fail. Bless the leaders of our land. Grant that we may choose trustworthy leaders in the upcoming election who contribute to wise decisions for the general welfare and serve you faithfully in our generation. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. We give thanks to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, with angels and archangels, and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Hosanna, 
Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of all creation. For you have had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In your righteous judgment, you condemned the sin of Adam and Eve, who ate the forbidden fruit, and you justly barred them and all their children from the tree of life. Yet in your great mercy, you promise salvation by a second Adam, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and made his cross a life-giving tree for all who trust in him. We give you thanks for the redemption you have prepared for us through Jesus Christ. Grant us your Holy Spirit that we may faithfully eat and drink of the fruits of his cross and receive the blessings of forgiveness, life and salvation that come to us in his body and blood. Hear us as we pray in his name and as he has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, grant us thy peace. Amen. Please approach the altar in groups of about ten.
strengthen and preserve you, body and soul, in the true faith, unto life everlasting. Depart in peace.
strengthen and preserve you body and soul in the true faith unto life everlasting. Depart in peace. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever. O God the Father, the fountain and source of all goodness, who in loving kindness sent your only begotten Son into the flesh, we thank you that for his sake you have given us pardon and peace in this sacrament, and we ask you not to forsake your children, but always to rule our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit, that we may be enabled constantly to serve you and to bear the cross with patience and in the blessed hope of the resurrection to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.